0: You really can sell to anyone from anywhere.
2: This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Start selling online today. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free22. Shopify.com slash free22. Shopify.com slash free22. Internet connection required. Not available on mountaintops or sea floors.
3: This is a proud production of ITM Media. Good day to all the Marbleheads out there listening to Ramblin' About Racing, whether you're on the Unhint Sports Network, belly up podcast, it doesn't matter. You're listening to arguably, I dare say, one of the underrated racing podcasts out there. Matt Beamer here as always with Charlie Herkus. Got a great episode in store for you today. Steven Malazi is going to be joining us, a development driver with Rayun Brothers Racing. Gonna be sharing his story and his infancy in nascar and then really just what he's done in the world of auto racing but first and foremost charlie how's it going did you have a good week how do you enjoy daytona Uh,
4: you know weekend weekend went great you know for the most part i thought daytona went pretty good honestly up until the end of the cup race i didn't think it was that great a race i thought the xfinity race may have been a greater uh, a better race than
3: i would agree with you um,
4: there than the cup race I, i i thought there was more excitement throughout the xfinity race uh, like I said, until the last maybe 15, 20 laps of the Cup race, that was really it for me. Um,
3: yeah, I, I'd have to agree with you. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the Cup race, I feel. But I, there is one topic I want to bring up that we are going to spend, I think, a little bit of time on before we get into our talk with Steven. But the Cup race, I'm with you. Eventually, they found the top. The Xfinity found the top, as always. They always seem to do that. What I found ironic about the whole weekend was it was a 20-year anniversary of Dale Jr.'s win at the Pepsi Pepsi 400. And they replayed that during the Xfinity delay when it rained. And I found it ironic that that was such good racing back in 2001. It had such a fun rules package for the fans. Maybe not for the drivers, but definitely for the fans to watch. It was intriguing. It was fun to watch. A lot of passing, a lot of side-by-side racing. What you think of super speedway racing should be. Then you go to... The actual race on Saturday, the 400 there, the Coke Zero 400 there at Daytona. And eventually, they found their way up. There were no runs in the – There was it was just kind of boring, like you said, up until with 15 to go when everybody started realizing it's go time.
4: Yeah, just back then, man, it just seemed like drafting was drafting back then. You know, nowadays with, with the way the, the front ends match up with the rear ends of the other cars, you hear about that beach ball effect where you just, unless you just get a major run, you can't pass. And you you hear of, well, he's he's out there too far. You know, he's gotten out too far in front of the field. They're just going to get a major run on him. He, he You know, if he tries to block, it's going to cause a wreck. And that's exactly what's going on right now. There, there's too much blocking, and it's causing way too many wrecks. And, I mean, sure, does it make for exciting racing? Absolutely. But at the same time, drafting is not drafting like it used to be because of the aero packages. I I, I just feel like, it's like I said, you know, one car just can't pull up there and pass like, like it used to. There, there's too right. much stalling out, so to speak. You know, it's just not... Not like it used to be. They're not as racy as they used to be on the super bus.
3: No, and I don't like it. I want to I don't either. No, I absolutely no, don't. If either. I was there at Daytona, I think I'd be singing a different song than I am now. But I wasn't because when I was there at Daytona and that big wreck happened at the at lap fifteen in the five hundred, it was just like that. The remainder of the cars found their way up top and rode around. It was no side-by-side racing. When you think Daytona and Talladega, and I'm not I don't think I'm alone in this. You think pack racing two by two by two for 500 miles, 400 miles in this case, and in some cases three by three by three for that amount of time. And drivers, I think, have complained and said this is too close of a racing. There's always a big run. Well, nine times out of ten, there's always going to be a big run at Daytona and Talladega where you're going to wrap up a lot of cars. If you don't like it, boycott it and move the Xfinity up to the Cup Series level for a race. Because I just to me that's just a boring race for the most part. It used to be you used to anticipate restrictive plate racing or tapered spacer racing now. But now it's gotten to the point where I feel it's just they're gonna find their way up top. It's not gonna be racy, and I think stage racing has a thing to play in that as well. For me, Daytona was alright. I kind of expected a lot to expect. I was expecting maybe a chase drive a non chase or non playoff driver to be competitive up there and win it, but that just didn't happen, Ryan Blaney? Well,
4: uh, you know, LaJoy, Le- Corey LaJoy was, yeah, was Corey Lejoy. very competitive, just kind of got hung out to the dry there at the end, and the bottom line was just as fast as the top. You just couldn't ever – you, you wouldn't ever have anybody stay committed to form a line down there.
3: Right, the top line was the way to go, and I think Daytona now is a one-groove racetrack, kind of like Bristol is now. The high line's the way to go, and the bottom is not where – Used to be where it was twenty years ago. Clearly, I think
4: that probably has a lot to do with the aero packages and stuff that they take to these tracks nowadays.
3: Well, hopefully, the Gen Seven car will fix that. I'm hoping it will. We'll I don't know. Five hundred. We'll see. Come to five hundred, but that's just the way it is right now. And unfortunately, it wasn't anything. I guess you could say to write home about. It was a good race. It was good watching Daytona. Daytona is always fun, but. I don't know. It just wasn't up there for me as far as racing was. And I think it could have been better, but it could have been totally worse at the same time. But I got to talk about this before we get into our talk with Steve. The, the Belgium Grand Prix, and I wish Preston was here to talk about this and maybe give a little bit of insight on it. Did you watch it by any chance? I did not. Well, it got rain delayed. There was rain there. And Sergio Perez even wrecked on the formation lap. Not the formation lap, but him going to the grid and gritting up. He wrecked out. But what happened was the rain was coming, and the FIA said, it's not safe at all. We're not doing it. They even ran a formation lap and said, no, drivers can't see anything. Bring them to the pits. We're going to just delay the start. I can understand that. A part of me wanted to see the cars go off into turn one, missed up and everything. This is what you get paid for. And I don't want to hear another Formula One fan say NASCAR doesn't race in the rain, Formula One does. That's a load of crap because at this rate, at this point, oh, you know they're playing the safety card now. You can't have it both ways, in my opinion. That's one. Two, they brought him to pit road. Three hours later, they tell the drivers to get, to get back in the car. Now, they were debating whether to postpone the race till Monday or just wait it out. I guess Monday wasn't going to be a situation where they could because it would turn into a situation like at Texas last year where they'd have to race till Thursday. They, Thursday would be a clear day. So I kind of see their. The FIA painted and Formula One painted themselves in a the corner. But what they did was they got the drivers in their car, they ran them behind the safety car for three laps, and they officially started the race. They brought them back in and said, Race over. Max Verstappen won, George Russell second. And Lewis Hamilton third. Now they didn't get full points, to my understanding. Full points only allow uh, allocated seventy five percent or greater in race distance. If you were uh, in at Belgium at Spa, so let me
4: let me get this straight. Based off what you said, all right, they ran three laps behind the
3: behind the pace car. They, in a sense, ran three laps around the pace car, pulled and parked it, and red flagged the race and said race over.
4: Now, what in the actual garbage right. hell is that?
3: Ask if I just
4: paid the thousands of dollars that an F1 ticket cost.
3: Probably hundreds, but yeah, I understand what you're saying here.
4: Did, do you not remember us pricing out the Texas tickets that time?
3: I do recall. Okay, yeah, uh, thousands of dollars. Say you and I paid the thousands of dollars not only to buy the ticket, but the logistics to going over to Belgium for the race, getting hotel you know all that stuff, especially now during COVID. I think I'd be going up to the ticket booth and saying, "Give me my money back." Somebody's catching hands. Absolutely, because I mean, if you're in the continent, I guess I'm getting
4: put in a Belgian prison.
3: Prison. Yeah, I don't know if you want that, but if you were, <laughs> I can understand if you're in the continent of Europe. It's a, that's necessarily going to one state or another. I'm rotting. I'm simplifying it. Of obviously. That's like us, you and I, planning a trip for Richmond. Them running three laps and saying race official after that. I think so the FIA... Pretty 80. much where you qualified... You win. Is where you finished. Yeah, exactly. Where you qualified is where you finished. If I, was, if I was at Belgium, I would be so mad at the FIA, at Formula One, at everything. And I get it. You can't control the weather. But for them to say the race official, and they probably said over the PA's, and I don't know if this is true, but I'm I'm not going to put it past Formula One or the FIA saying not this year at least. Race official. Hope you enjoyed your time here. I, I would be extremely upset. I'd be livid.
4: I'm, I'm pretty sure there's some people
3: that were storm the track. I would want my money back. Could Absolutely. You, could you imagine if Formula if NASCAR did something what Formula One did this last weekend in Belgium? I could not imagine the repercussions. NASCAR probably wouldn't survive. It would be just no. as big, it would be bigger than the cooler debacle they had there a few months ago, wherever, I think it was Texas, where they just had a big cooler debacle. Cooler's not allowing the track, how dare you, and then charge 4 or $5 per, for water and, and $9 for beer. It would be bigger than that. I don't, I hope NASCAR never does anything like that. It made me less of a Formula One fan. Let's just say that. It made me... I was already...
4: Not a Formula One fan.
3: I like Formula One. I appreciate the sport. And again, I wish Preston was here to defend it because I would love to hear the f- defense for this.
4: I would love to argue. I,
3: I never, ever want to hear another not, especially a non-race fan say NASCAR is a bunch of pansies because they don't race in the rain. Formula One does. Well, based on the Belgium Grand Prix, they don't. I just don't say, think that was a race. No, it wasn't a race. Apparently, it was in the eyes of the FIA and Formula One, and they still sprayed the champagne, which is the biggest waste of time. If I, if I, Lewis Hamilton would have gained a bunch more respect for me if he would have came over and said, this is a load of crap, I'm not doing the podium, going away. Because they sprayed champagne like they accomplished something, which to me, they didn't. That's just me.
4: I don't like Lewis Hamilton anyway. Yeah, so. no,
3: I don't either. But before we get into our talk. And I know we keep saying this about Steve. I wanted to get your opinion on that. Cause that really made me upset. Now that the cup series is going to be starting their playoffs here in Darlington this weekend, back on episode 69, who makes the playoffs in 2021? Preston and I made our predictions on who's going to make the cup playoffs this year. It would be really nice if people went back and listened to that episode, because I think it's very insightful of our mindset before the season started. Cause I didn't even have Kyle Larson in my picks Preston did with wins, and I said, I don't think Kyle Larson will do well. So go back and listen to that whole thing. But out of the 16 drivers I picked, I got 11 out of 16, so that's a 69% rating that I have there. The drivers that I picked that didn't make it was Bubba Wallace, Chase Briscoe, Matt Benedetto, Austin Dillon, and Ross Chastain.
4: Those are who you picked to make it that didn't make it? Correct. I could have told you a couple of them. I don't know why you didn't call me.
3: Well, I don't know, but I I did pick Kevin Harvick on wins. That didn't happen. He did it on points. Hamlin on wins. That didn't happen. It happened on points as well.
4: I can see where you judged that just based off of last year. based on
3: last year. That's exactly what I said. I said, Harvick won nine races last year. He's got the momentum. He's going to go in and do well. Egg on the face there. But then I also picked Christopher Bell on wins. I'm happy about that. Blaney on wins. And Bowman, I picked on points. Again, egg on the face, but I got to give it to Preston. I didn't I didn't add up his stuff, but mentions right here. He picked Redick on points. He nailed that on the head, and he picked Michael McDowell for a win, and we said either Daytona or Talladega. Well, he ended up winning the Daytona 500. I would just say go back and listen to episode 69 after you're done with this episode because I think that's a great episode, and it gives you kind of a comparison in there. But I did say this as well. I said, if Bubba Wallace doesn't make it on wins, we're going to do a giveaway here. So I've got a giveaway here lined up. I have an extra ticket to Darlington. So if somebody writes me an email, let's say an email that they listen to episode 69 or listens to the show and says, hey, I want, a, I want a ticket to Darlington. You have to take care of lodging and food and all that stuff, but you got a ticket there. Along with a Rambling About Racing t-shirt, we'll give it to you. Yeah, that's that's uh, all I got there. Episode sixty nine here, Charlie. Anything else from this past weekend's events uh, before we get into our talk with Stephen?
4: Uh, no, I think that about covers it. So,
3: all right, let's get into our talk with Stephen. All right, we're joined now by Stephen Malazi from where are you at Virginia right now, Stephen? How's it going, man? Welcome to the show. Uh, how are you doing? It's going great. Um, thanks for having me. I'm in I'm in Charlottesville right now. Sorry. UVA. Okay.
1: Um, okay. First week of college, so oh, it's wow. uh, it's been a hectic week, you know, trying to to race in in Charlotte and do North Carolina and the Carolina Pro Series and yeah. all the hectic races and all that stuff while also living in. You know, Virginia, that's that's going to be a lot of travel over the next few months. But I'm excited. we got a lot of exciting things on the table. Which, and, um, you know, obviously, me being back at school is great because COVID, we didn't have anything. Right. Last year is pretty much an empty empty, empty campus the whole time. So Okay, so you're a sophomore now, junior? I'm a junior. I'm a third year, as we call it here. So I'm an economics major. Okay. Um,
3: oh, that's a tough Yeah, one. I,
1: I started at, what would you say?
3: That's a tough course. I know uh, I tried to do economics once in a uh, statistics that, that yeah, did me, and I tapped at, out right there. I don't see
1: you being a no, economics tab, I, I, I tapped
3: out right there. I said, nope, the same for me.
1: <laughs> That's kind of how I was with biology. I was like, I took bio, like, intro biology. Like, I'm going to be a med student. I'm going to do all this. I'm like, hell no, I'm not going to do all this. Biology sucks. Dropped it, like, my my second semester. I'm like, I'm switching majors and ended up ending, like, enjoying economics a little bit. So. I do a lot of other stuff on the side, though. Obviously, I'm pursuing other avenues, but I gotta have a fallback plan in line to uh, to get a career if if racing doesn't end up working out the way I hope it does. So,
3: right, it's nice to have a plan B. I like the way you think. A lot of people don't. I feel. Uh, Where are you originally from?
1: Uh, Sweetsboro, New Jersey. I grew up about 45 minutes from New Jersey Motorsports Park and 15 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, not exactly a racing place where racing is extremely popular. Not a racing center if you would say. So, so did you
4: did you grow up in racing, or is it just something you kind of got in
1: later in life? I uh, got into it later in life. My dad is a lawyer. My mom, when she retired in 2004, was the vice president of ticketing and sales for the Phillies, Eagles, Sixers, and Flyers. So no oh. racing background, no mechanical background whatsoever. And when I was younger, I was a little late to the table to talking. Couldn't really speak that well, which is ironic because now I won't shut the hell up. Um, so... <laughs> So I was, um, I could always, though, the one thing I could always do was name car brands as they drive by, like Ford, Chevy, Toyota. My parents would be like, what the hell is wrong with this kid? He can't talk, but he can name car brands. So, um, then it kind of started from there, played racing video games, played with the toy cars, all that good stuff. And one day after winning the championship on NASCAR Thunder 2004, oh, wow. <laughs> it was on rookie. It was on rookie. That's my favorite one. I still go back to it every now and again. I walk up to my dad and I say, dad, I'm really good at this video game. I'd be pretty good at it in real life. So for my ninth birthday, he told me, no, that's not how it works, but I'm eight years old. I don't understand at the time. Took me to an indoor rental go-kart track. As a nine-year-old kid, I broke the junior track record my first few sessions out there. Hmm. So we did that for three or four years and literally the same rental track over and over and over again. We have over 1100 sessions. At $20 a session, too, keep that in mind, at the same rental track. Now, that math doesn't work out because we had a couple deals thrown in there because we knew the owners obviously extremely well were throwing all that money at these guys. And they cut us huge breaks throughout the way. And um, not possible without that track. Mid Atlantic Grand Prix in Newcastle, Delaware is is what it's called. And then I turned 13 and my dad said, All right, this is boring. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go to the next level. So we went to Cuddybackville, New York, Oakland Valley Race Park. And got hooked up with an actual go-kart, like the competitive stuff, Rotax engines, and uh, started racing on on the more competitive karting circuit. And by the time I was 16, I was a vice national champion in Rotax, Team USA representative, and we uh, ended up going to grand finals in Portugal, which was a, uh, was a hell of an experience for us. It was, uh, it was awesome. It was my dream for me and my dad to do that. So the fact that we got to travel together and do that, was pretty incredible. So that's, that's how I got my start in racing and and climbed up the ladder in my sort of way. It was pretty quick. It was crazy. I was racing against kids who had do, been doing competitive cars since they were four or five, and here I am in my second and third season and ending up on the podium and doing a great job. So um, it was awesome. That was a uh, those we had some rough times yeah. uh, where my dad and I fought, but that's what was always great about it is it was a bonding relationship between my dad and I. Right? It was never like. Me going to the track with a couple of tuners and a couple of mechanics and some guys I didn't really know that well. It was always me and my dad. And my dad, from the ground up, learned how to wrench. And enti- like he could, he could change an axle on a go kart. He could change an engine on a go kart. And this is a guy who probably couldn't change his windshield wipers <laughs> before uh, before any of the racing stuff happened. So it was a it was a hell of an experience. Yeah.
3: So what are you racing uh, these days?
1: These days, I'm in uh, a late model 602. I'm a development driver for Ray brothers racing. What happened was is when I was 16 height of my career, my dad got diagnosed with, with stage four cancer. Oh no, really bad stuff. Yeah. Um, it was long to never smoked a day in his life. And you oh. know, when you're 16, your parents are most of your funding in racing. And obviously that was not the concern. My dad at the time, they gave him six months to live. It was not a good experience for anybody. And racing went to the back burner, but the week after he got diagnosed, We had a race in Vegas and I had never won anything on a national level before that single event. And we decided to go because we needed a a break. And there's a video clip on YouTube of this event and we're running fifth with three corners to go. And on the outside, I go from fifth to first and win by two one thousandths of a second at the line And um, to win my first ever race the week after this horrible earth-shattering news for our family, we end up going to Las Vegas and taking the checkered at one of the biggest races of the year. So that was incredible. After that, I did nationals the next year, finished runner-up, got my ticket, and that's all we did. That's We didn't have the money. Um, my dad ended up, you know, he's still alive today. We're in 2021, five years later, and he's still around. So oh, wow. has greatly exceeded expectations. But we got to do that grand finals event together, and then we were out of money. It became, you know, kind of like a saving mode. You know, we don't really, there's a lot of uncertainty in our life. So I retired, moved into broadcasting a little bit. And then um, what happened was this off season, I started emailing people again, I'm sitting in my bedroom one day, dad walks in and says, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, dad, I, I, i never got my chance to do stock car racing. I'm like, and I've always wanted to do it. Something I've always wanted to do my whole life. And I've never gotten the opportunity. And he's like, well, S, you know, you can't really be upset about it. You don't do anything to pursue it. He's like, there's nothing you have done that has shown me that you want to be a stock car driver. And I sat there in my bed for about an hour and a half, and I thought about that. And it stuck with me. I was like, he's right. So I started sending emails to people, to potential sponsors, to potential team owners. And funnily enough, Josh Rayum was one of the people I sent an email to and never answered me. But finally, Bill McAnally answers me. Says he's got the BMR Drivers Academy going on, and he wants me to go out and do that. Um, says he's willing to work me a deal to get me out there and do this and do that. And I spent the rest of the time devoting hours and hours to finding sponsorship and funds to go do the BMR Drivers Academy. Nothing ever came, came to there. And what, um, what's, the, what's the BMR Drivers Academy? So it's Bill McAnally's program. He, he hosts a program out in California. It's about 40 races. It's just basically like an ARCA series that's, that's sanctioned by Bill McAnally. They're all in ARCA cars. And a bunch of drivers, you know, go out there and compete. If you win the series, you get a truck race in Phoenix at the end of the year. So, you know, you're going to be Derek Krause's teammate in in the championship event in Phoenix. Oh, cool. um, but uh, there's a lot going on with that. Bill's an awesome guy who wants to help you out in racing, and, and he was expecting to get 10 or 15 drivers, and he ended up with three to seven for most of the races. So it was a really unfortunate deal because, like I said, he's just trying to help people out and get into the sport, and it ended up not being what he wanted it to be. So it's a growing program. I'm hoping he gets it off the ground and keeps keeps moving forward with it. But what ended up happening was is while I'm in this search, I was good friend with the Philadelphia 76ers commentator, Mark Zuma. And I emailed him and told him everything that's going on. And I had, our, our relationship was strictly commentary-based. He had never known that I was a race car driver, that I wanted to do this. So he emails, he, he emails me back and says, you know, you're a race car driver? We've known each other for three years now, and you never mentioned that? So he puts me in touch with Michael Carey, who works for Toby Christie, who put me in touch with a guy named Peter Salino. And let's be clear, I have no idea who the hell Peter Salino is (laughs) today. I'm still trying to figure it out, but he's a very well-connected dude and a great guy at that. And Peter calls me, he's like, listen, I've heard that Bill's program is not what what it's going to turn out to be. I think you should come to Charlotte. I'm going to get you set up with some things. He's like, but you got to trust me. Three days later, I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. Four days later, I walked into Josh Rayum's shop and uh, we started getting to work. And I worked at RBR, as an intern, unpaid for about a month and a half before Josh and I started working on getting this development program off the ground together, and um, now you know I race race in the late model class, of the Carolina Pro Series, and at Hickory, and that's pretty much what we're doing. I'm, I'm planning on returning the track on Saturday. I'm going to do the race at Hickory, and then we got a pretty jam packed schedule from here on throughout October, especially with the truck stuff slowing down for Josh. So, yeah, exciting stuff. So,
3: yeah, it sounds like it we had josh in, in early in our times here at the show at that time it was i think a couple years ago almost he didn't bring up any developmental drivers but that's how i found you was they tweeted out there hey these guys are developmental drivers so i followed you on facebook and it was you and someone else i forget who
1: uh jonathan Cuevas. so and actually Well, I got the chance to talk about Johnny. I think he deserves a little little light here too. So let me, let me take this opportunity. Jonathan has one of the most incredible stories that anybody ever met. He, um, his parents are from Mexico. Uh, He was born in the U S and he, you know, Mm kind of dug his way out from the bottom. You know, he told me the quote that really sticks out is he took his, uh, his own words. He took his (laughs) box Acura, drove across the country from Arizona to North Carolina started working at a car dealership, sent himself to NTI and engineering school. I, I actually don't know if it was NTI. It was an engineering school. Yeah, Graduated with a degree and then found himself working at RBR. And ever since he's been putting in the hours at RBR. So Josh can afford him the opportunity to race a car because that's all he's ever wanted to do. Oh, wow. And when I say there's nobody hardworking, I'm a hardworking guy. Don't get me wrong. Cuevas has got me beat. That guy busts his ass constantly. To get where he is so um it's me and jonathan um and josh kind of threw it together it was like a there were people along the way he always likes to tell it to me is there are people along the way who, without them i never would have gotten to where i am today mm-hmm. and you know we're on the verge of i'm on the verge of as driver making my hundredth hundredth nascar start and he's like and as an owner we've got some some big things in the works coming up and and i'm excited for them all and like i could never have gotten here without the support yeah. that I otherwise would have had. And he's like, my opp- I have an opportunity now and I'm in a position to start a program where I can kind of get back a little bit. So I and the way it's been it's been going is is, you know, Josh has been a very no BS kind of guy to me. Mm-hmm. He's been extremely helpful. And without him I would have been completely lost because I know nothing. Coming into the summer, I knew absolutely nothing about the late model scene. And now I feel like I'm I'm moderately knowledgeable, yeah. Not super smart, but I'm I know my way around, so yeah, it definitely is something that kind of just came together. I think I think me being there really pushed Josh to get it done because I think Josh knew that there's a little bit of urgency. Right, the whole yeah. reason I made the move to Charlotte this summer and I wanted to get this done was because I, I, my goal is to make a single National Series start in NASCAR. One, if I never touch the wheel again after that, I'm okay. As long as my dad gets to see it, okay. um, and, and that's what I told everyone. I'm like. I'm on a clock here. My cl- The clock is ticking. I'm in a battle against time right now. My dad spent so much time, so much effort, so much money into giving me the opportunities that I've had to race. And I'm like, now I'm in a position both financially and, you know, stability-wise to go out there and, and repay these opportunities and give him some joy. So it's crazy. My first race, it was at Florence. I go out there. I've never driven a stick before. Uh, the only time I had was on our test day and I'm leaving the pits and I'm panicked and I pop it out of first and we bought a dog crap transmission. i mean, just bad. The whole shifting mechanism was the most makeshift thing I have ever seen on a race car. Complete disaster. Where I had the whole thing rebuilt after this whole conundrum and it pops itself out of first and I go to put it in first rolling at 20 miles an hour and drop it into reverse. Whoops. And uh, that is not, a good thing. Nope.
0: A be a, no.
2: I wouldn't at all.
1: So my dad is on his way to surprise me six hours into a 10 hour drive to Florence, five days after a round of chemo. And this man is he's, he's like on a mission to see this race. So I I'm on the radio with my crew chief Matt Wolper. And he's like, listen, he's like, do not touch first. Do not touch second. You're going to restart it in third and you're going to go to fourth. And that's it. And I had actually learned from then on, I had learned how to start the car in third. So now starting in first is easy because starting in third is is a pain in the neck. Yeah. And we took the trans. My dad got down there. We ended up racing. We actually almost finished inside the top 10 in a 20 car field. So it was a good debut for me. But when I took the transmission to Mangus on Monday morning, he's, he calls me. He's like, you know, first and second gear are gone. Like, they're They're just destroyed, buddy. And he had to do a pretty expensive rebuild for me on that thing because I wrecked it. But it's like the smile on my dad's face when he got down there makes every waking minute I spend on racing, every dime I spend on racing, all the effort, all the late nights working at RBR, everything totally worth it. Because, you know, I love racing. And don't get me wrong. If I can make a career out of it, I would love to do that. That would be my number one thing. But to me, the number one thing that racing always gave me was this kind of relationship between my dad and I that I'll... That I'll cherish forever. Like I'll hope to be the same way to my kids that my dad was to me. Yeah. And a lot of that I owe to racing. Um, so now I'm kind of trying my best to give it back and and hopefully achieve this goal of a truck series start while he's still around to see it. So that's that's the objective. I've got a lot of freaking learning to do, man. Stock cars and go karts, not even close to the same thing. Extremely different, but I, I'm definitely getting better. There's a huge learning curve when you go from not even knowing how to drive a stick to trying to compete with guys who have done national series, NASCAR starts and are, are competing with these big budget late model teams and going out here and have years of experience under their belt. And they're in the guys, guys that's
4: been driving a late model since they were eight or nine years old.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and here I am, you know, month in out here on the racetrack, trying just not to wreck it, you know, trying, because I know if I, if I get into a wreck, that's super severe, that's the budget. That's what we got, you know? kind of insane i look at it i'm like you know i'm now associated with a professional nascar team and that is like i'm i'm an ra here at uva and i talk to the residents about it and they're like you're not a you're not a race car driver i'm like i i promise you i promise you it's not like it's not like i'm i'm jimmy johnson but i promise you i'm associated with this this nascar truck series team and it is like Josh Rayum's the that, man. That's all I can say about well,
3: that. Tell you them know? to listen to the podcast uh, come Wednesday, and they'll, they'll hear all about it. I, I promise. Oh you. yeah,
1: you'll get you'll get you'll get at least twenty six viewers from having me on because my hey. immediate family's going to watch, and that's five right there. And then you got nineteen of my residents who are all going to get a link to, to check us. There we out, go. So.
3: There we go. I appreciate that. Folks, before we continue on with today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone out there about our online store at Teespring. There you can find the latest and greatest rambling about racing gear such as pint glasses, t-shirts, phone cases, coffee mugs, you name it, we have it. And if we don't have it, we'll make it up for you. You could also find all of the In the Marbles throwback gear there as well. And from now till the end of September, if you use discount code PLAYOFFS in honor of the NASCAR playoffs that have started here for the Cup Series, you'll get an additional 20% off your order. You head over to ramblingaboutracing.com. Under the stores tab, you can find the link to the store. And remember, 20% off of your entire order when you enter discount code playoff till the end of September. Go check it out. As a developmental driver for Rayum Brothers Racing, what does that entail? Does that entail just late model starts? Does that entail shop time, fixing trucks, learning the trucks? What, what goes into being an actual developmental driver?
1: So the kind of agreement, and this is unspoken a little bit, but it's, it's definitely what, what's going on here, is Josh is not really making any money off of this, like at all. He's pretty much giving us the experience to not only learn how to operate financially a team and your own equipment, but also how to work on it. And also he's providing us with the resources and the people who know how to do this stuff. So for example, I'm one of the least mechanically inclined people I I know. It's kind of pathetic. But over the summer, my mechanical skills exponentially grown. And the best example I have is I literally took my own transmission out and put it back in by myself, um, the week before I left. And like, that is something that if you had asked me to do it three months ago, I never would have been able to. Right. Um, so it doesn't tell a lot of shop time. And for me, I was working at RBR pretty much six days a week. It's traveling with the team on a full-time basis. I do some of their media and press releases as well, because that's, that's something that I've been traditionally very good at. So I take care of that stuff for Josh too. I'm like, it's kind of like a, you help me, I help you type situation, right? Yeah. And it's the same thing for Jonathan. Jonathan puts in unbelievable hours at RBR. And he also works on all of his own equipment and, and, you know, and does basically whatever Josh asks. So Josh repays the favors whenever he can. And it's, you know, Josh is one of those good guys in racing who wants to see people succeed. He wants to see drivers get those opportunities. So, but, you know, at the same time, RBR is a small market team, right? It's not, they're not rolling in cash. to to fund a full development program out of pocket, right? They need something out of it. And obviously he's trying to afford these opportunities to the drivers who don't necessarily have the funds to do it the way that a lot of people do. So that's kind of the trade-off, right? You do put in the hours at RBR, you do help Josh out, you do take the time to learn the equipment and go to the track with the team and help out in any way that you pretty much can. When I moved to Charlotte, I think it was like May 4th or 5th, I took a short week, the first week I was there because I was still in finals week, So I knocked out my final exams. The minute I was done, it was pretty much, I would get to RBR. I was a late shower. I would show up at around nine or 10. Everybody else at the shop usually shows up at seven and I would leave probably at eight or nine at night, a lot of nights every single week. And I would stay there until the job was done. I also obviously had to work. I had to work another job, which is why a lot of nights I showed up late because I was, had to pay the rent, had to pay food, had to pay for gas, had to pay for all that stuff. So I had two jobs, but like, it's more valuable than just driving because I'm also learning the ins and outs of NASCAR. And like, as, as somebody who was traditionally just a NASCAR fan before this, I found out I know nothing about the sport.
3: I thought I knew a
1: lot. I know freaking nothing.
3: And can you give us an example? Like, because Charlie and I are fans, Charlie's more of in the racing. I say than I am, but me as just a over enthusiastic fan, can you give me a, for instance?
1: Oh yeah. For example, like, how quickly the loading and unloading process of a hauler has to be in order to be considered an efficient race team. I mean, it is an all hands on deck, just absolutely big and kind of job. Like you have to keep working and you are hustling and moving and getting yelled at and being told to do this and told to do that and throwing everything in there to get out of the track and taking it all out when you finally get there. Like, and then don't even get me started on tires.
3: Yeah, please do. Let's let's hear about tires.
1: Tires, for example, tires to, uh, to a fan or just something that goes on a race car. Like I never would have put (laughs) so much thought into, into how much effort has to go into getting the tires to and from the pit boxes and the trucks. That was my job the first week I was there. I'm telling you right now, I gained six or seven pounds of muscle mass just from this. Um, because it's like good year, especially from the truck garage, the cup garage gets priority. So Goodyear parks closest to the cut garage. Then the Xfinity guys get second bid. So the truck guys are getting, you know, the furthest spot away from Goodyear most races. And like I, I think at uh at Texas it was like a half, not a half mile, probably four tenths of a mile of a walk. Okay. So you've got five, six sets of tires. And you've got to take tires to Goodyear, take them back from Goodyear, take them to Goodyear, take them back from Goodyear, take them to Goodyear, take them back from Goodyear. It's three hours of running tires. It is obscene. And it's like they're not freaking light tires. They're heavy as hell. And, you know, obviously, I had people help me. So when it wasn't just me, it was generally me and another kid of me who were running the tires. It's the little things. It's the small details that go into into running a race team that people don't realize are are really what makes the fundamentals the fundamentals and the small things that make a race team great. And there's just so much behind it that goes into it. I mean, things that people wouldn't think about drinks, getting the cooler full of drinks every day and getting ice before you get to the racetrack. And then you're five minutes behind schedule when you get there, because guess what? The line at the gas station was seven minutes long and you were expecting it to be two. It's like the small thing sets you behind and it sets off a chain reaction and you gotta be so precise with everything you do and being at the racetrack on a daily basis is constant hustle. You know, there were times where I got frustrated with the people who I was working with because I'm like, guys, I am hustling. I'm freaking moving. I am about to pass out and die. And you guys are freaking here telling me to keep digging. I'm like, I am. I'm moving. I don't know what else you want me to do. So it is just, it's it's so much work, and it is it is freaking harder than people realize it to be. And those are just you know a couple of the small things. Obviously, you know, there's a lot that goes into racing. I think that's I think I said enough on that right there.
3: Right. I saw something like that firsthand when I was in New Hampshire. I got hooked up with a hot pass, and it was a small narrow. You know, pit road and then the access road. It was small and narrow. And it was every time the caution would come out, I, you know, you don't see it on TV. But then the beehive starts and everything's just going crazy. Crews are setting up. But then after the pit stops, like you said, the tires come back. I had a stop for someone. And one of Jeff Gordon's tire carriers with the whole rack of tires just rammed in the back of my Achilles tendon. And I, I, was ups, I was upset. I was upset in myself. I was, I was mad. Uh, well, I was kind of, you know, hey, I'm sorry for you. He was sorry about me because he just rammed into me. It's like, no, I'm in your way because, <laughs> man, I just saw it firsthand. That's crazy yeah. just how much yeah. goes into it. And people don't realize that. And I think it's good that especially drivers, and I think Charlie and yourself, Steve, could appreciate this more than I can, that if you get that, if you work on it, then drive it. You appreciate it more. You take care of it. It sounds like you take care of your cars just based out of necessity, vice anything else. But I think that's a good trait. because Zalowski went through the same thing. He took care of this stuff, and that's how he got picked up by Junior Motorsports for a Bush Series ride or Nationwide ride at the time. So I think that's a great trait to have in a driver.
1: Yeah, for sure. And like just to just to close the book on the tire thing. I mean, they're like twenty five hundred bucks a set. $2,500, $2,
3: even for the truck series? Said that wrong. I'm pretty sure that's right. No,
1: no, no. Actually, I'm, I'm sticking with my answer. They're okay. about 2500 bucks a set.
3: Holy cow. And then you buy them race used for 20 bucks out on the side of the track after the race.
1: Yeah, and Goodyear is so... I don't want to say anal. Anal's the wrong word because they have to be so persistent about it. Like everything be. has yeah. to be done to a T. And it's got to be done perfectly. they got to get the tires back. They've got to be turned in at the right time. They've got to be mounted at the right time. They've got to be there on time. Like, And what people also don't realize is part of the beehive that you were just talking about, I, I didn't even mention this, is like some smaller teams, example, RBR, won't buy the full allotment of tires before the race starts in hopes that somebody, a bigger team, a GMS truck, for example, I think it was Zane Smith who wrecked out a Pocono this year. Um, we did not buy the full allotment of tires. And on lap one, Zane Smith and another truck crashed. So it was a it was a hustling game for all the smaller teams to go over to the 21 team. And if you wanted another set, buy them because you get them at a discounted price when you transfer them. Because you can't return a set of tires once you buy them. So if you buy them and they're only good for that race at Pocono, which they are, you're screwed. You just spent 2500 bucks on tires that you're not going to use. And when you're thinking economics here, let's use it real quick. When you're thinking about, you know, the producer-consumer relationship, the 21 team has no incentive to hang on to the tires. So they're willing to get rid of them and make a little bit of the money back at a severely discounted price and sell them to a smaller team like an RBR. And there's Josh saving 1,200 bucks or whatever it is because he got a cheaper set of tires. It's tough because people don't realize how smart Josh Rayum has to be and owners like Josh Rayum have to be with every move they make. Because they're in this position where they're, they're trying to develop something and they need everything they can get to try and make it to where they're trying to get. Yeah, that's another little thing on the, on the tire aspect that I think is, is extremely interesting. Like, it is such a complicated game. My head hurts whenever I listen to Josh talk about it um, because, like, it's something that he puts so much thought into every event that we go to. And, like, me or you, me three months ago or you, like, you might have no idea that that's how it works. Just so insightful, so helpful to know, and it provides a lot of perspective when you're watching. And you're like, "Huh," now I don't think of this the same way that I used to. That's twenty five hundred bucks in tires they just put on for three laps.
3: Now I now I got to know this because I remember seeing that a long time ago in the Cup Series where a driver would wreck out, and even the big budget teams would go over there and buy their tires. I didn't think NASCAR still allowed that.
1: It's pretty much not NASCAR at all. It's pretty much all Goodyear. Okay, uh, so so that's you take good them back year. to Goodyear, and I don't know. I have no idea on the Cup Series rules. I am not informed on Cup Series rules. I only know the right. Truck Series. Um, but I know in the Truck Series, it's absolutely legal to go buy tires and transfer them to another team after something like that happens. So that was something that that definitely happened at least two or three times in just the time I was at RBR. That like I was like, oh wow.
4: This is kind of getting on a whole different argument here, but you would think. Well, I've already purchased these tires from Goodyear. These are my tires to do as I wish with them. If I want to sell them to a different team, then I should be able to do so. Yeah. Uh, Regardless, if it's Cup Series, Xfinity Series, whatever. Anyway, that's kind of a whole different topic for a whole different.
3: Oh, whole different. uh, uh, Yeah, yeah, whole different episode here. (laughs) Yeah. So now, now I got to ask Stephen. We talked about it before we started this interview, but I got to know that thing to your right. I I got we got to know what that is because you're in a small. It looks like. I mean, it doesn't even look any bigger than a barracks room, but you got to tell us about that.
1: So this is my racing simulator rig. I purchased it when I was in when I was in North Carolina. Everybody told me, you know, I racing is so helpful. If you get it, it's gonna help you learn how to drive. It's okay. gonna be mm-
4: That's funny because we've heard the exact opposite from yeah, we've heard from uh, another driver <laughs> as well that we've had on the show.
1: Interesting. So so very strangely enough, I actually feel like it has helped me learn a ton. Honestly, I'm not super experienced in actual driving it. So maybe that's why. Maybe maybe she wasn't neither. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) she didn't grow up. She didn't grow up in racing either, so it's kind of it's it's funny. Interesting, and I also feel like too though. If you if you buy like a cheap setup, I feel like that's a lot less helpful, and that's what everybody advocated to me. So when I bought this, there were a few different packages to buy a rig like this. It was like you know a five thousand dollar package, an eight thousand dollar package, a twelve thousand dollar package, and like a twenty five thousand dollar package or something like that. And every I was like, well. I'm not rolling in cash right now. I'm not really feeling anything. I'm not even feeling the $5,000 package. Let me just go get some wheels and some pedals and build a PC and call it a day. And everybody's like, no, you need to get the rig. It helps you a lot. I'm like, okay, then let me get the $5,000 one. And then everybody was like, no, the $5,000 one is not good enough. You got to pay for the (laughs) upgraded wheel and the upgraded pedals. I'm like, it's a freaking piece of metal with the steering wheel attached to it and a PC. I'm like, it's eight grand. I don't I, like that's my for, for perspective. I, I bought a budget late model. My late model all in was probably $13,000, okay? I bought an older chassis. I bought a used engine, like I fricking, and like good engine, dynoed engine. So we know the engine's good, but like nothing spectacular. I did not go out and buy a $50,000 late model. This simulator was damn near the same price. Because I got the idea, they, they're all like, you got to get the upgraded pedals for the realistic feel and, and you know, the nice graphics card so it looks realistic. I'm like, I don't give a shit Just give me whatever you guys think is going <laughs> to help me learn how to drive a race that car. That is
3: so funny because Charlie just upgraded his computer and we're going to stream iRacing here for our Twitch channel and maybe race with you some. you it, will yeah. school us up a little, but...
4: Yeah, now, I don't have now, that about $4,500 tied up in just a computer. That's not including the rig and all that kind of stuff. So
3: I have far less because I'm not invested in it like y'all are, I guess. I don't know. It might just be me. But I got to know how you got that into your room because your room looks maybe be Ugh. like maybe 15 by 20.
1: That's the size of my room. And actually, just real quick, you can see the bumper in the top right corner of my screen where my head is. Ugh. That's actually the bumper that I raced at in Portugal oh, okay. when I was starting. Um, but – so, that's the size of my room. We had to disassemble. I I, I had to disassemble it. Yeah, yeah. So, it was it was actually fine. It wasn't as big of a hassle because my door in Charlotte was the same size as my door here. So, to get it in in the first place, I had to get it out, I had to take it apart anyways. Okay. So, I just left it disassembled and moved it in, disassembled. But the assembly of this thing holy crap, it is miserable. The screws don't stay where they are, so the heights change if you let them fall out. And then you got to re-align it so the monitors are all curved at the right angle and they line up correctly. Otherwise, you're going to have like a screen that looks like this and the car is half off here and half off there. And then you got to mess with the freaking... It was a pain in the neck. You gotta, you gotta put the shifter back on because yeah. we couldn't shift it through and whatever. And it was just a, it was a pain in the neck. It was a huge pain in my neck to get this thing in here. But like I said, they, everybody told me to get the upgraded eight thousand dollar one, and then I paid extra for the extra pedals and I paid for an nicer graphics card because I was like, why not? At this, at this point, you're eighty one hundred dollars in. What's eighty nine? I feel like it's kind of been my life in racing so far. Just keep spending freaking money, and eventually it'll all work
3: out, right? It sounds like Um, a catch-22 from an economics major.
1: Right, right. That's that's what I've been telling people. I'm like, you know, my 70000 dollars year degree is telling me that the $70,000 I'm spending on racing – is not a smart economic
3: investment. Not nah, go for it, man. I don't, right,
4: so, any, I don't think there's anything in racing, probably a, no. a smart economic decision. No, it doesn't so sound like uh, it. uh, racing and, and economics don't line up together. So Yep,
1: that, I always that's that's my uh, that's my
4: uh, tip move, like that, uh, uh, moving back to the developmental side of stuff, you talk about wanting to run at least one truck race. What do you feel you have to do to make that happen from from a driving aspect, from a performance aspect, all, all that kind of stuff? What do you feel that Steven has to do to, to make that happen?
1: So I think that's an easy one. I honestly don't know that my driving is as far off as we think it is. I think a lot of this is a learning curve for RBR as a team and for me as a team and for understanding the car and the setup and getting that together. I think from a driving perspective, I'm, I'm progressing at a very good level and I'm happy with it. I think what we need to do is just get some laps, keep turning them, keep running them, keep the car clean, stay out of trouble. Right. And if we can do that, I, I honestly think that we're, we're not far off. I really don't like the the best example I have is we went to Dylan for Carolina Pro a few weeks ago, and the car was, I mean, unbelie- undrivably tight, just really bad. And we found out we were off on the spring, off on the front torsion bar, off on like so many different things in the car. So finally, we get the car freed up and I'm able to drive it a little more. But then we realized I- I'm, I'm in the final at this point, so there's nothing we can do. We realized that I'm topping out at about 5,000 RPM. And we had just totally missed on the gearing as well. But we didn't know that because we were so far off when the chassis set up and we just blamed it on, you know, okay, we can't get off the corner fast enough. So that's why we're not getting that high in the RPM. Um, and the chip in, in the Carolina Pro was mandated at 62. So we are 1200 RPMs off the top of where we should be on the engine right there. And we were only running laps that were a little over a second off. So I'm feeling like the, that the number one thing I'm worried about learning is racecraft. I feel like carding and carding racecraft was my specialty. That's what I was strong at. I was never a hot laps kind of guy. I was the kind of guy where you put me in a pack of five, you've got to be damn sure I'm going to end up in the front two of those guys. But in cars, I feel like I'm a little less certain of the size of the thing that I'm driving. And I think getting used to that adjustment of going from aggressively racing things that are about the size that I am to something that's the size of a full-sized car, if not a little bit bigger, That's going to be the biggest adjustment I have to work on. But I really do believe that turning laps and gaining that experience is pretty much all I need to get behind the wheel of a truck. I really don't think there are some people who just get behind a wheel and like you kind of feel like they shouldn't be. I don't think we're in that position. I think we're doing all right. I really do. But I definitely think we got to turn. We got My goal is to run five or six more races before the end of this season so we can have pretty close to double-digit numbers by the time that we talk about a truck race for next year.
3: What's the timeline on that? If Josh were to come up to you, like, say, this week after Darlington, and say, hey, Steve, you're doing good numbers, you're doing good things, you're taking care of the equipment, what truck race would you want to pin as your debut starting the truck series next season for 2022? Or if not this season?
1: Yeah, so this season, is, it's going to be pretty impossible. We had actually discussed Watkins Glen at one point.
3: Trial by fire there. Yeah, right? I
1: know. So we had we had discussed it at one point, and we were going we to try and do the ARCA race, get me in that. But um, we ended up falling behind with the development stuff. and didn't get enough sessions in to do either one, so we kind of bagged them both. And it worked out better for me anyway. I was uh, a best man at a wedding that day, so kind of important to be there, I feel like. So I think it worked out in the end, because I... I I honestly, while I'm okay with only doing it once, I want it to be a good once. I don't want it to be once that I go in and I wreck it or I blow a transmission or I do something stupid and embarrass myself. So I think the the extra time is actually good. I don't think it's a possibility to do it this year because I don't think NASCAR approves people to do their first race in the playoffs for the truck series. I don't think for any series, actually. Even if they did offer me to do a race this year, I'm not sure I would want to do that until I feel like I'm comfortable by the wheel of a late model. Uh, From the get-go, I have told Josh, I have always wanted to drive at Daytona International Speedway. I'm like, if they do the road course early on next year, one, that's better for me in terms of the dad timeline, because, you know, obviously the sooner we get it done, the better. But two, that's also a track I've always wanted to drive at. It's a road course if we do. the So I'm likely to get approved because obviously you got to do a short track or a road course as your first starts. And um, it's something I've always wanted to do. It gives me the rest of the season to work on my craft and hopefully get it to a point where... I feel comfortable behind the wheel of the
3: truck. I'm going to look up something here real, real quick. What you looking up? A couple of years ago, there was a driver for Rayun Brothers Racing, and I follow Rayun Brothers Racing in the trucks because we've had Josh on and a couple of his drivers on. Her name was Angela Ruck. I'm sure you've yeah. heard her name, Steve. I don't know what happened to her. Just She was doing fine in 2020, I feel, developing well, and then she just fell off the face of the earth. And I think you mentioned there were sponsorship issues and stuff. But I, wa- I saw her race at Daytona, the Oval Track. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaking, and I probably am, and I can't bring it up right now, that was her first start.
1: Oh, okay. So I can explain this, though. Oh, okay. I can explain this. This yeah. I can. So if you are going to be a fully funded driver and, like, you're not making a mid-season start, the objective is, hey, you're going to do a full entry. You're going to be a full entry, full time. And that's the plan from the get-go. Then you can run the entire schedule. Got it.
3: Okay because I mean, she, um, so, was, she was doing fine until she put herself in a position where she just rookie mistake. I feel is that ever, is that on the card? Is that on the table whatsoever? You just saying, Hey, let's just go forward with Josh and let's go full time.
1: Let me tell you something. If I find somebody with the money to run a full time schedule, hell yeah. I, I've talked to Josh about him. Like I have been in talks with people who are in a position to sponsor a truck team if they wanted to, and nothing's just come to, there's a lot of reasons for that one. People feel like that the value is better spent in another series. People feel like that the value, and, and it's tough. NASCAR is a tough scene because of digital marketing. Digital marketing for for five hundred thousand dollars on Google, you're going to get a couple million clicks. Right? Like, there's a lot of advertising dollars in spending money on the internet and and elsewhere. Even like, think about a billboard on I ninety five. How many cars are going to drive that by that in a given month? and how much less that's gonna be than paying for a full-time truck. So the people I've been swinging at are big, big money businesses. For example, crane operators, right? People who sell multi-million dollar industrial cranes because for them, the investment is, okay, do I think I can sell two cranes from this operation, from this sponsorship? Do I think I can reel in two people and say, okay, this is is the product we wanna go with. When you look at something like a pencil company, Think about how many millions, not millions, thousands of pencils they have to sell because of NASCAR in order to get their return on investment. the, The probability, in my opinion, is less likely to get somebody like that. That's why I feel like you see a lot of industrial freight carriers doing this, sponsoring NASCAR nowadays, right? And also truckers and NASCAR fan base, very, very popular with one another. But I've been in a position to talk to these people, but there's been a lot of reasons, right? I feel like there's better spending for the advertising dollars they feel like there's better places in NASCAR for their advertising dollars, or they've they've been hit hard by the pandemic and that has caused them to not have that type of budget in their thing. So it's really unfortunate. I got really close with one. Um, I thought we were going to get something done and, uh, just didn't, didn't come through. And it was that one was gut wrenching because we had so many positive meetings. I felt like, you know, that we were going somewhere and I do have, I do have a number of sponsors, right? I, I have, um, Domino's on my car. I have car dealership on my car. I have an appliance center on my car. I have tobychristie.com on my car. I've got a few, few, and like, you know, dominoes or Toby Christie are brands that people tend to know. And obviously I'm grateful for all their support, but I haven't had any of the big money people who can get me talking about a full-time truck schedule yet. So the people who are supporting me right now are, are supporting me at a level where they're like, Hey, this is a local kid that we want to help out or, Hey, this is a kid who we like his story. We can't give him half a million dollars, but we can give him something. And to those people, like to a lot of the people that I've been dealing with for sponsorship, these are not people who are flowing with cash. I mean, Domino's is, but these are not people who are flowing with cash, right? These are people who are just looking to help me out. And those are the sponsorships that to me are like, wow, these people are back in my career with whatever they got. And then, you know, I'm so thankful for that. But in terms of looking for the three quarters of a million to million and a half dollar sponsorship, you need to run a full truck schedule. That is, that is not something I've been able to pull together yet.
3: I'd say go after the big fish like Amazon and Tesla. That'd be cool.
1: Yeah. Miguel Bezos actually just dad is a graduate of my high school.
3: There's the end.
1: Right. that's what I said. I'm like, I emailed my principal or I texted him one day. He's a priest. I'm like, listen, I got a strange question. Would it be really that wrong if you connected me to Miguel Bezos? He just gave you guys fourteen million dollars. I think he'd love he'd love a little bit of Stephen Malazzi story time. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think I'm gonna pitch him real quick, to see what he says. You know, um, but he's like, yeah, we obviously if we if we give it to you, we open a Pandora's box of. Giving out Miguel Bezos' contact information—that right. to us as an institution is something we can't afford to lose. But even my high school, like my my alma mater, has been extremely helpful. They've been trying their best too, reaching out to a ton of of people who are alumni and being like, "Hey, you know, we have this story from this kid who wants to be an NASCAR driver. Can you help?" And that's gotten me in a lot of meetings, and I had a lot of phone calls because of it. So, extremely grateful for those guys too. Like so many people have been helping me along the way and getting me to where, to where I am. And like, it just, it means a lot. It really does mean a lot to me.
3: Okay. Shifting gears here. Who would you say is your biggest, I guess, influence slash mentor that has helped you develop as a driver ever or in late models? I, I would say just in general, from the time you started indoor go-karts to now as a development driver in Rayum brothers, obviously, obviously Josh is up there on
1: this list, but in terms of, of driving,
3: it's definitely Mike Doty and Chris Bogart.
1: And those are two guys that I worked with back in karting. They taught me so many valuable lessons about not only physically driving, but the biggest things they taught me about the mental side of it. And there's one story in particular that I think tells us, and we were racing with Mike one day, 30 carts show up in my class, pretty big event, and we are dog <laughs> slow. I mean, it is like 10s off the pace in a track that we are traditionally always in the running for a win at. And I think we practice in 21st out of 32 or something like that. And I come off the track and I am just ranting at Mike. I'm like, Mike, this thing sucks. It's out to lunch. We can't get it together. I can't turn it. I can't do this. I can't do that. And I was in a bad mood all day. I think I got in my foot with my girlfriend or my mom or something. And I, I was just not in a good mood that day to begin with. And Mike walks over to my dad and starts pointing at stuff randomly on the go-kart. I go sit in the trailer, air conditioning, suit on, angry, pouting, you know, whatever. And Mike walks in about a half hour later and looks at me and says, found something wrong. He's like, we know why you were so slow. He's like, promise you, go out there and drive it. It'll be a ton different. I go out there for qualifying and I put it on pole. Walk off and I say, Mike, what was wrong with it? He's like, you were. He's like, I didn't touch it. That's He's like, it's all in your head. Wow. He's like, "You were, you were, were, you were in a bad mood when you got here today. You were driving like you were in a bad mood. You were overdriving everything. You drove like an asshole. And he's like, I could see it the, from the minute you walked in that you were going to be a problem today. And I laughed at Mike because Mike Mike's not, like a, Mike's not like a bad guy. He's screwing with me. He's messing around with me because we were close. Yeah, I'm like, wow. I'm like, he's right. And he walked away. Mm-hmm. And I have pulled that trick. I have driver coached young kids in karting. And I've pulled that trick on some kids that I've coached. And I've said to them out there, I'm like, look at this. We found him wrong. Three, four, five tenths if they're in the wrong head state. It's it's like magic. It is unbelievable how much mentality matters. And um, I don't know that a lot of drivers realize that because I think they get frustrated really easily. They don't realize that even if they're not, they don't think they're making mistakes and they think that they're driving perfectly if you get down or frustrated or angry or upset over something in racing, it always impacts the way you drive, regardless whether or not, you know, it. Mike, Mike and Chris, Chris was my tuner slash mechanic for a very long time. And you know, he driver coached me a ton too. Without those two, I wouldn't be a quarter of the driver I was today. There was another guy, Mike Dean, Mike taught me how to drive. So I think without him, when I was like 10 years old, I think without him, I would never have had some of the abilities that I have, but I think, Chris and Mike really refined those skills for me and made me, made me the driver that I am.
3: Awesome. I, I've never heard a driver come on here, even Josh Rayum or Jesse Wooji, Brian Barnhill, who've worked with Josh, say mentality means a lot more than that. So I, that's that's impressive to me. I think that that goes a long way as well. Wouldn't you agree, Charlie?
4: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It, it's harder than what people think to to keep a Uh, A level head, especially once you're on the track, much less before you go out there. I I can say that firsthand because I've been black flagged and suspended my fair (laughs) share of times. But (laughs) so it's definitely easier said than said than done. And it it does go a long way to to notice that and and be able to do it once you're out there on the track. So
1: for the record, uh, Charlie, I've been black flagged to the bumper actually is because I got wrecked in one of the heat races in grand finals. And I think it was a Brazilian kid who wrecked me. And it's, it's like 450 drivers from like 55. Mm-hmm. To it really is grand finals. And I come off, I come off the track after the checkered and I am like seconds behind the pack. And this kid is one of the last cars in the pack. And I get up alongside him and I turn left as hard as I can in the pit lane going pretty fast. You told me, just-
3: wait, wait, you Robbie Gordon to him. Robbie Gordon toned him. Ass, yeah. Absolutely
1: <laughs> just thrilled him. I was furious. And I was sick. I had a 104 degree fever when I was in Portugal. Of course, the biggest racing week of my career. And I get sick. Of course. What Come else would happen? So like I was, I was not thinking with a clear head, but I, I nailed him and it, and it broke the bumper. And like, they're really strict about the regulations of yeah. appearance, go kart, and, and like, they want everything to look great. And they want everything to be great. So, if you mess anything so much as a sticker, they'd make you replace the sticker. But I messed up the whole bumper, so uh, I'd also broken the drop down mechanism on the back, so they just told us to buy a whole new bumper. And I duct taped that to the outside of my racing bag to get it on the flight back from Portugal and it worked. We got back and it was there. So um, that's I'm probably one of the only kids out there who has their bumper from the grand finals left. So I completely know what you're saying when you say sometimes you don't use a level head and, and you freaking do something stupid. Yeah,
4: I, I probably got a, a good half a straightaway or more running head start. And I went a little over three quarters of a hood deep. Up underneath the rear into somebody, so I had had enough of it.
3: Remind me not to piss you off. Yeah, me.
1: Yeah, you yeah. Don't <laughs> piss
3: any of you off on the track. Holy cow! In, in general, oh. don't do that. But uh, who would you say now? I guess who you look up to in racing, like as far as whether it's truck, Xfinity, or Cup, who do you look up to the most and try to emulate? So there's
1: there's a couple. There's a couple. Josh is on there because the number one thing I love about Josh is he comes from a very similar background that I do, right? Racing is a sport where you need money to succeed. And there's no, there's no way around it. If you don't have the money, you're not making it big. And it's brutal. And like, there are very few people. And let's be clear. Kyle Larson is not from a poor family, but Kyle Larson is one of the few examples of people who made it on a lot of talent. Because, you know, like think about Cole Custer's dad. He's an executive at Haas or Austin Sendrick's who's an executive at Penske. I mean, a lot of these guys come from backgrounds. where Austin
3: Dillon, the Dillons.
1: Yep. Austin Dillon, Austin Dillon. Right. There's a lot of people who come from these backgrounds of, of significant wealth and opportunity. And that's why they end up making it bigger because they can pay for the rides. It's no longer a lot about talent. And Josh hates that about racing. We talk about it all the time. And he wants to provide opportunities that give kids the chance. I think this is awesome about our mirror. Let me let me recap this. So we had the first kid on the autism spectrum make a national series start. We had the first openly gay driver make a NASCAR start. We had the first disabled veteran make a NASCAR start. We've had Jesse Wuji, Angela Rock, Natalie Decker. I mean, the, the diversity of backgrounds that we've had on our team is unbelievable. Yeah, and the amount have- of
3: opportunities you, you, say? you just had Chris Hacker make his- Chris Hacker exactly yes exactly
1: another great example. Josh is all about giving people opportunities, and I look up to him for that reason um, because he has put himself in a position to help other people, and he's taking it even though he is not as well off as a Hendrick Motorsports. Like he is not he is not bringing in bank like Hendrick Motorsports does or has the hundreds of dollars that Hendrick Motorsports does, or even a GMS. Or, uh, or Thor Sport. like if we wanted to compare it to the truck level, not even remotely close to that. And he's still finding ways to give people the opportunities that deserve in racing. And the amount of respect I have for that will never, ne- like that's yeah, I can never pay that to Josh. But then there's also to me, I, I have always I've always aspired to end up like a McDowell because I feel like that man has fought through. I would not. It, McDowell reminds me of Nick Foles. And I'm an Eagles fan too from Philadelphia, just outside of Philadelphia. You get pushed down. You end up, there was a stretch of three or four years where Michael McDowell had one finish better than 30th place in and he ran two and a half, two and a half seasons in the four years that were run, maybe three. It was a lot of races and he had one top 30 finish. The mental state that I would be in, If I were out there in a car that I knew was either going to park or not finish above 35th week in and week out just to survive, I don't know if I could do it. I aspire to have that level of persistence to make this dream, to make it big. And now you look at the guy and he's found, uh, who the hell knows what's going to happen with Front Row if they're going to sell their charters to 23XI like people are saying that they're going to. Um, But he's found a home for the past few years with a 3014. And he won a race. And he's been one of the best drivers at Super speedways, He's always been consistent at road courses. And he's making the most out of crappy equipment. Not
3: no, I know what you he meant. He's he making
1: the most out of what he not nothing equipment. Right? Yes. Yeah. And I've always said, yes, I've always said, I want to see Michael McDowell in the five or in the nine car and see what he can do with that kind of ride. Because he's never had that opportunity in his career. Yeah. But I hope that's why I admire Michael McDowell is because of that persistence. And that's why after that that story with Tony Stewart and looking him up in the 59 car. So I kind of, I was like, yeah, I can get behind this guy. Yeah. It's it's yeah. That those are my two. I aspire to be like those two. I don't, I don't really want to be a Kyle Busch dominating, but kind of douchey. I don't really (laughs) want to be Kevin Harvick, the lovable old guy. Now I don't want to be, I don't want to be a Tony Stewart. I don't want to be a Dale Earnhardt. I kind of want to be a guy who, who makes it on his own and makes it on his own accord because he's persistent about what he loves to do. Right. And that's, I feel like that's Michael McDowell.
3: I would totally agree with you. I was there for that 500 victory that he won. And I would have to say, we have another co host here. His name's Preston. He's just going through life events right now. But he called Michael McDowell to win. He's a big McDowell guy. And I think he would have enjoyed talking to you.
1: That is hilarious, Matt. So this is before I was a part of NASCAR. So it's okay to bet on NASCAR.
0: Okay. Um, oh.
3: So in
1: January. <laughs> In February, I went up to my dad and I said, dad, to, to be fair to my best friend, Noah, who I talked to you guys about earlier. I told Noah when spotter's name was Martin Trex Jr.'s last year. Now he's McDowell's.
3: No, oh, I, I don't know. Offhand. Clayton Hughes okay. was
1: Trex spotter. Moved to McDowell. I'm like, that's he's going to win the 500. Like I just have a feeling about it. He's such a damn good spotter. Like He's going to do it. He's going to get the victory. And then in February, I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, I'm like, I can't bet. I'm not 21. I'm like, but you can. I'm like, I'm going to give you some money. I need you to go place a bet for me. I want you to bet money on Michael McDowell to win the 500. And he's like, okay. So we put together like 200 bucks worth of bets, and I said, I think we put 60 on it on McDowell. We put like 75 bucks on it, something like that, on Michael McDowell. And the rest we split between like – Stenhouse and Bubba and like a couple of other people and all of them wrecked in the big wreck at the beginning. Oh yeah. Or went down or got toast. Um and the only one left was McDowell and he's running 16th with 20 laps to go. My dad put in 50 and I put in 150. And that was kind of the split that we did. And he's like, I'm going to bed. This is stupid. Because it's 12 30 in the morning and he doesn't want to watch McDowell's running 16th yeah. with like 20 laps to go. I'm like, Dad. If you get out of your chair right now and let me buy you out of your best, you're gonna regret it because you're gonna miss out on like a thousand bucks. And he's like, "All right, I'll stay, I'll stay." And when he won the race, I went ballistic because we won like seven grand off of that. Wow! Um, Enough for the
3: simulator. Yeah, right. pretty much bought the simulator.
1: (laughs) That's what I'm saying. So it pretty much bought the simulator for us, right? It's freaking. It it was nuts because I had I had never said to Noah or my dad that often I thought McDowell was gonna win it was kind of like this inherent feeling yeah. in my gut where I was like, I, and I, let's be clear too. I had never bet on a NASCAR race before that. That was the first race I had ever decided to bet on. Probably the last at this point. Yeah, I,
3: I would I, say that's the last.
1: I can't do it anymore. So I, I'm a hundred percent on race picks right now because like, that is just one of those things where I had a gut feeling about who was going to win. I went after it and like, I mean, it's just, I don't know. That was, that was a, I freaking lost it. I have been waiting so long for him to win, and I have been trying to point fingers at him because he's always, always there at the end of super speedway races. There are so many of them where he's just at the end, just there, and um, he never got credit for it. And then he finally started to catch on. Like last year, people were like, oh, maybe Michael McDowell's not bad at super speedways. And this year, now everybody's like looking at him because he got third at Talladega and first at Daytona. And fortunately, the blown engine broke my heart this weekend, but happens
3: to everybody i guess right and preston would agree with you because he 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 was just like you that daytona 500 he said that was my driver that's such an odd pick to pick but okay and when he crossed the finish line and he was declared the winner it's like gum and he called it <laughs> i don't know how he did that preston called it and must have been yeah. just like you he must have been here in south carolina cheering and all that stuff it was great yeah. Final question here, Steve, and this is what I would like to ask drivers now that come on the show. It's kind of a blindsided question, but I think it's a good one because I never get it, I never hear it asked in any other interview. Okay. Okay. No, if, if you weren't at all involved in racing, if you were never introduced to it, you never turned one lap on a track or have that awesome simulator in your room, you, you're you not invested in racing whatsoever, what would you be doing? Okay. And what would you aspire so, to be? So I'm going to give you a.
1: a, a... A little bit of a longer answer to explain why I think this is the case. So when I was younger, I was super nerdy and shy and played a lot of video games, did nothing else. So I was never good at sports when I was younger. But then in seventh grade, I started running track and I got super athletic, like could run a 454 mile in the eighth grade type athletic.
3: 454 uh, four mile. Holy 54 cow. I was Smoking.
1: Now I'm kind of fat. And, you know, <laughs> but, but back then I was I was in good shape and I could do it. I got I developed intuition for sports and baseball and football and basketball and all these other things. I got some wheels on me. I would have committed pretty much all of my time to football if that had been the case.
3: Okay,
1: Um, I'm only five ten, about one eighty. But everybody always tells me I was actually not going to flex on you guys for a second. I was all state NFL play sixty flag football player for my defense skills because I was the best flag puller. Around nobody can pull a flag like Stephen Watson can, so um, I I would think I would probably end up doing football. I don't actually I have never thought about that question. That is that is one that is um, kind of strange to think about. But I I love football. Right. I honest to God too. It's it's really interesting because the second biggest thing in my life right now is broadcasting. I work for ESPN and the ACC network down here, oh, nice. and I call a lot of uh, UVA sports events. I call like women's soccer, men's soccer, lacrosse. Field hockey. Not, no basketball or football yet. I'm not that good. But I'm working Street my way. There's
4: not much to call in football at
1: UVA. Oh so. no. Oh Oh,
3: God. So blow. oh, no. Blow. oh my goodness. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're both Alabama fans. Just like, oh he's <laughs> gone. Steve's oh, gone. Yeah. Good job, Charlie. And yeah, <laughs> that was Steve. Yeah.
1: Um no, oh, but uh geez. that that is that is let me tell you, that is for sure true. <laughs> I wouldn't have that if it weren't for racing. So I don't know what the hell I would be doing. I really don't right. because commentary would be the other endeavor I'd put much more time into if I had it instead of racing. And like, I would never have started commentating if it weren't for racing. So I, I genuinely don't know. I would say I probably would have devoted all my time being a football player though, because okay. I love football so much. Right. And football is like my, my sport. I love doing it and I have such a good time doing it. So yeah, that's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with football.
3: That's a great answer, Steve. That was Awesome. That's awesome. I'm glad uh, we're one of the first ones to throw it at you. We like throwing that at drivers, you know, because it's like, I don't know. And you have to think, dig deep there. But Charlie, anything else for Steve before we let him go here?
4: No. You know, that was kind of my, one of my bigger questions I wanted to ask was, you know, what do you feel like you needed to do to to make that truck series start? And I feel like you answered that pretty well. So that's really it for me.
3: All right. Before we go, Steve, you want to tell everybody how to reach you and follow you on social media if they haven't already?
1: Oh, yeah. So uh, my Instagram is at Stephen Malazzi, just my name, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-M-A-L-L-O-Z-Z-I. And then um, my Twitter is Driver Malaz, Um And my Facebook's also just Stephen Malazzi. So if you want to keep in touch with anything going on with me, also feel free to email me. It's just my name at iCloud.com. Right. And um, I'm reachable there too. If if uh, anybody wants to talk or, or just hear more about my story or whatever the case may be, I'm I'm always reachable by any of those
3: platforms. So That's great, man. Hey, thank you again for your time here, Steve. I know we, this is probably one of the longest interviews we've had, but we enjoy it. I, you have a great story. I think you're putting in the good work there. And, and man, best of luck. I want to see you in a truck in 2022.
1: That's, what, right. that's Thanks, what I man. See. Thanks, Charlie. I
3: appreciate you guys having yeah, me Yeah, absolutely. On. Yeah, anytime you want to come back on, just drop us a line and say, I got some big news. I'm like, we'll make room for you. Don't worry. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. No problem. You be safe out there, and we'll see you later. Before we wrap up today's show, I wanted to remind everyone out there about our partnership with Fanatics. Fanatics is a proud partner of the Unhinged Sports Network, which we here at Ramblin' About Racing are a proud affiliate of. So if you head over to ramblinaboutracing.com under our Sponsors tab – there at the bottom, you'll see a link to Fanatics. It'll take you right to the NASCAR page where you can get all your latest and greatest driver gear, such as T-shirts, hoodies, diecasts, and much more. But it doesn't just stop you have to stop there. If you like Alabama Crimson Tide football, buy Alabama Crimson Tide football from there. If you like Washington Capitals, Washington Capitals has all their stores there as well. So head over to ramblingaboutracing.com under the Sponsor tab. Link is there at the bottom for fanatics. All purchases will help out the Unhinged Sports ever bring you better content and more content for the future. Go check them out.
0: White flag, white flag, white flag. One lap to go. One lap racer.
3: Right Final thoughts here on rambling about racing, Charlie. First and foremost, what a great uh, talk we had with Steven. What do you think of him?
4: uh i I like him you know i I think he's got a you know positive attitude he's definitely trying to learn um he's another one of those drivers that you know didn't necessarily start off at a young young age growing up and racing but he's there working uh they're learning it seems like he's got a good deal going for him we'll just have to see how it plays
3: out yeah i think he's got a great deal there with uh josh rayum and rayum brothers racing it's a Fun organization. is probably far one of my favorite truck teams there in the garage because it is that underfunded thing. And we had Josh on the show, I think, episode 13, 11, 13. It was a way long ago before when Preston and I first started this show. Great to have him on. Thanks again to Steve. And make sure to go follow him on all his social media platforms. For the latest and greatest of what he's got going on, great guy to follow and great guy to stay in touch with. He might surprise everybody one day. But now we get into our final thoughts, our driver of the week this week in NASCAR. And I'm going to go ahead and start with this week in NASCAR. I think this is a fun one. Given that it is the Southern 500 this weekend, we go back to September 1st, 1952. Forty Flock, wearing Bermuda shorts and a short-sleeved shirt, takes to lead just before the halfway point, and motors to victory in the third annual Southern 500 at Darlington. And this weekend, I'll be at Darlington, so if you find me around there, I'll be camping in the GEICO camping back on the back stretch of the campground. If you find me there, we'll crack open a beer and talk about racing. That's about all it's about to me right there. It's going to be a lot of fun, and trust me, you're going to want to stay tuned till next week. Probably going to have some stories from there. It's going to be a lot of fun, though, but, Charlie, who is our driver of the week?
4: So driver of the week this week, we're going to go with A.J. Foyt. A.J. Foyt is, of course, well-known. Everybody's heard of him. American auto racing driver who has raced in numerous genres of motorsports. Includes sprint cars, midget cars, uh, NASCAR, USAC. He's won several, several major sports car racing events. He holds the USAC career wins record with 159 victories. He was born January 16, 1935. See USAC national champion in 1960, 61, 63, 64, 67, 68, and multiple. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. As far as his NASCAR career, he ran in the Cup Series, he ran 128 races over 30 years. His first race was 1963 Motor Trend 500 at Riverside. His last race was 1994 Brickyard 400. His best finish in points was, from what I could tell here, his best finishing points was 40th in 1989. And first win was the 1964 Firecracker 400 at Daytona. And last win was 1972 Miller High Life 500 at Ontario. Total of seven wins, 36 top tens, and nine poles. And that's going to be our driver of the week is A.J. Foyt.
3: Yeah, very nice. i Loved him as a team owner. I wish he would have done better in the Cup Series as a team owner. And uh, pop quiz, Charlie. I'm going to give you a pop quiz here. I do this to press. Oh, boy. Okay, I got the answer. Bananas. No, no. no. Listen to the question first. In the 2001 Daytona 500, A.J. Foyt debuted his race team. Who was the driver? In
4: 2001?
3: In 2001. Who was the driver for A.J. Foyt Motorsports? Andretti. No. He drove for Petty.
4: It wasn't Stewart.
3: Nope, it wasn't. He was with Joe Gibbs at the time. I don't know. Ron Hornaday. Ah, uh, Ron Hornaday yeah. was in that car. Forgot about
4: Hornaday. Yeah,
3: every a lot of people forgot about Hornaday. Yeah. But, but man, um, again, thank you for everybody. Remember that giveaway. Email us about it and say you want to go to Darlington again. Not all expenses paid. You're just going to get a ticket for entry, and that's going to be for is it, is it
4: first person email?
3: No, not necessarily. I say whoever emails us their best moments of the show and if we like it we'll give you the ticket again it's just a ticket for the cup race and then you also get the ticket for the truck race as well sunday you got to deal with lodging and you got to deal with food we we'll, we'll deal with the ticket but if not it just goes, it's just going to go to waste so first person who could do that and then you get a rambling about race and t-shirt courtesy of myself Matt Bammer. But, Charlie, anything else before we go? Thanks again to Steve for being on the show. A lot of fun. Make sure to go follow him on all social media platforms. Charlie, anything yeah, else?
4: Yeah, um, just real quick. Close family. You know, we had Jeff Reeves on here. His uncle, Paul Reeves, passed away uh, Saturday morning. So if we can keep all the Reeves family and, and, and thoughts and prayers, the the viewing and funeral and everything's tomorrow, actually.
3: So that will be after this episode's out. So. Yeah. Yeah.
4: So, okay. uh, but keep, you know, keep the family of Jeff Reeves and everything with his uncle, Paul Reeves passing away. Okay. And so Paul was actually uh Southeast drag racing uh, hall of famer. Oh, wow. uh, he was inducted into that in 2017. So kind of, I guess kind of a local legend down here.
3: That should and, have been our driver of the week.
4: I guess so. Yeah, I probably should have went with that. Now that you say that, we'll do so. that. We'll,
3: we'll highlight his career next week. But uh, yeah, yeah, keep your family so Keep him. In, I,
4: have to, I have to get some stats up.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So. Do that. Uh, keep the Reeves family in your thoughts and prayers, and also keep whoever was impacted by Hurricane Ida there, especially in Louisiana, in your thoughts and prayers while they go through that down there. Hurricanes are no fun. Keep them in your thoughts and prayers, and also the 13 service members we lost in Afghanistan, 12 Marines, Semper Fidelis, and one Navy corpsman. Keep them in your thoughts and prayers as well because uh, we're just going through a crazy moment right there, that 20-year war. Charlie, anything else before we wrap it up here?
4: No, that's all I got, buddy.
3: All right, well, that's all we got. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Thank you again so much for tuning in to us this week on Ramblin' About Racing. Head over to ramblinaboutracing.com to links to all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Make sure to check us out on the Belly Up Podcast Network and on much of other Sports Network podcasts there, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, and, yes, racing. Thanks again to the uh, Unhinged Sports Network for putting us on their radio every Thursday with Encore Episodes. Throughout the rest of the week, I'd like to thank our partners here at the show, Flag and Anthem, Stand Up to Cancer, and Fanatics for all they do, not only for the Unhinged Sports Network, but for what they do here at Ramblin' About Racing. For Charlie Herkus, whose Twitter handle is Chuck8384, I'm Matt Beamer, MBeamer22 on Twitter. Thank you so much for tuning in to us this week. Stay safe and have a good rest of the week. We'll see you after the Southern 500.